Hello, I'm Shane and this is Rod, for those of you who don't know us. Um, we, I don't know, we are some form of professional Christians. Uh, <laughs> that's how good we are. They paid us for it. Yeah. So we help look after this community or more recently are looked after by this community, which is quite lovely. So uh, welcome if you are new, which... It's always hard to work out if you're new or just don't come very often, which is like a pretty common story around here. So if you, you know, like if you don't know someone, feel free to say hi and then embarrassingly find out that you talked to them six months ago but just forgot who they were. That happens quite a lot. Uh, We are going to be talking together today because neither of us could be bothered tackling this thing by ourselves. And uh, well, I was going to be talking on it, but then Rod had so many good things to say, I just delegated most of it to him, and uh, he's going to be saying all the brilliant bits, and I'm just going to kind of fill in with um, waffling in the in-between. And we are going to be, uh, we're in the middle of a series, which is quite a long series if you haven't been here for it, Um, although if you haven't been to church in about six months, um, you were probably still here for it. Uh, We're doing a series, we're still in Lent, because we really like to give the church calendar a really good go. Uh, and we've been doing a series on um, scapegoating and the crucified God. And so I'm not even going to bother trying to do a synopsis or praises of it because it's um, a reasonably long series now. But, you know, um, just nod and smile if you have no idea what we're talking about like usual and we'll still feel really good about stuff. So that's, that's okay. Um, we have two, I wrote about this recently, but we have two types of series here. This is a bit of a caricature, but they kind of follow along these lines. Um, Roadblocks and green pastures. And um, roadblock series are series that kind of try and help us cross hurdles that many of us have in our faith and relationship with God. Um, A lot of us have arrived here with lots of baggage that we slowly need to unpack, you know, when you go traveling and you don't unpack them for ages. Um, And things that make it really difficult for us to um, approach faith. And roadblock series kind of address some of these things and work out as a community how we might work our way through those things. Um, And that's really good and really important and really helpful. And um, for some of you who don't have hang-ups about God, it's really frustrating and annoying because um, you're like, why can't we just love Jesus and like get on with, you know, being kind to people? What are you constantly bringing up all these issues for? And we do deeply apologize for that, but um, that's where our brains go. Um, And then there's kind of more Green Pastures series, which is about like, what to do when you're over your roadblocks because removing roadblocks is important but then what do you do from there and so our next series is going to be a little bit more of a nurturing nourishing one um yeah i'll tell you about it in a couple of weeks so but today um <laughs> definite roadblock we're going to be talking about i don't know if the powerpoint's quite ready oh, sam sam's amazing um we're going to be talking about oh is there one yeah we're going to be talking about the wrath of god uh right on spe- i spent the <laughs> Rod and I spent most of the week discussing whether we'd say wrath or wrath and then ran out of time to actually plan today, so we're going to wing it. Um, yeah, so I love that guy. Yeah. Um, so the wrath of God, pretty common theme in uh, the Bible. Um, lightning strikes, eternal flames, including the atomic kitten version, um, plagues and smitings. I'm just going to read you a, a, a tasty little extract from Nahum, First, most people say Nahum, but I like to accentuate the hum. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger 
and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds the dust of his feet. I think Nahum woke woke up on the wrong side of the bed when he wrote this. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. Those poor people. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand his indignation? I can't. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Just to get a little New Testament, just in case you thought it was just the old. Romans 1 verse 16 to 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. So, if we're just kind of looking at these passages, <laughs> we've got a pretty angry Zeus-like character dwelling above the earth looking to press his smitey smite button. And I don't know about you, but um, many of us here wonder, can we love this God? Can we love a God of wrath? Fear, for sure. But can we love that God? And I know for myself, this is something I've wrestled long and hard with because these portrayal of, portrayals of God traumatize me and give me enormous anxiety. Um, for me, there's these overtones of kind of like a wife-beater-wearing 60s dad who pulls his belt out whenever he sees something he doesn't like. And I find that really, really difficult to reconcile with the God that I feel like I know and relate to. But there's no doubt that this is a biblical concept, so what do we do with that? Uh, Before we talk in detail about it, I thought... um been listening this week to stuff about frameworks and framing and the fact that um, it's kind of a bit useless to challenge someone's tacit their kind of their um sorry challenge their known beliefs um, when their tacit beliefs the framework around those beliefs is untouched um, because if you if you don't touch the framework then you can't really shift anyone very far. And um, and that framework can consist of all sorts of things. One of the things, one of the values that that informed the way I was brought up to understand the Bible um, was something that I think also informs the the kind of framework that that a lot of new atheists bring to ideas. And that is that um, that I was brought up to be a Christian that could take the Bible neat. Um, and that for non for non scotch drinkers that means with no water and no ice <laughs> so um 
So to be um, a, a muscular Christian, and that was an adjective that was used of Christianity, to be a muscular Christian meant that you could, you could take it. You could take the Bible. And you didn't need to water it down. You didn't need to avoid the more difficult passages. If there were things that you had to hold in tension, um, that, was a, that was a sign of your strength, that you were able to hold seemingly irreconcilable things in tension without breaking a sweat. And, um, and that meant that we were better than the liberals because the liberals were always trying to reconcile things and make things easier for themselves. And we're better, for the, for, better than the Pentecostals because the Pentecostals were always talking about the dessert of the New Testament. But they, they weren't willing to eat the entree and main of the Old Testament with all the, all the really chewy bits that made you gag when you tried to swallow them. But we... We, we ate the whole meal. And, yeah, it was part of, um, it, it's not something that, that people would consciously have said, okay, this, this gives us a sense of who we are versus other people and this is um, part of our framework and if you try to shift us on the detail of our understanding of the text, Part of our resistance is because of this sense that we're better than everyone else because um, of our ability to take the mental strain of irreconcilable ideas. But, but it was clearly, clearly there. Um, and so the idea that God was loving um, but was also going to send and, and was kind of pursuing all the lost sheep but was also going to send the vast majority of the sheep that God was unable to locate to hell um, for an eternity of conscious torment. That was just um, something that you had to suck up. Um, and if you were a true Christian, you could handle the tension. Um, and if you couldn't handle the tension, that was a sign of weakness that you really didn't have what it took to, uh, to handle um, undiluted gospel. And it's a mindset that still has its has its hooks in me. Um, whenever I encounter a reading of Scripture that eases tension in me, um, that makes it um, easier for me to, to reconcile some of these tensions, um, there's a little kind of whoop, whoop, whoop that goes on in my head. And, oh, I feel, you know, now I feel so self-conscious about doing a loud whoop. Um, well, just imagine a flashing red light as well then. Um, so, yeah, basically saying, and phrases like slippery slope and watering down pop into my head at the same time. Um, is that a whoop, whoop, whoop? Yeah, so people can relate to the whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, but it, it, I found it immensely liberating to realise that this was this kind of this tacit understanding that I'd, I'd kind of grown up with that wasn't anything intrinsically to do with the Bible. Um, it's not being able to live with those tensions. I, I looked at the lives of the people around me and I, I just saw a lot of shutting down, a lot of emotional shutting down to enable people to live with that tension. It wasn't really a, ultimately about taking the Bible seriously, but it was about... Um, prioritizing tension 
and ex- the experiencing of tension over truth. Yes, Sarah. Also, sorry, tacit means something. Sorry, something that you um, you don't know that you believe. Yeah, you don't know it's informing the way you approach things. It just does because it's something the kind of the invisible culture that you grow grow up in. Um, and all, I mean, that's all of us. You know, in in the modern worldview is is full of these things that in, that um, these under, underlying beliefs that that shape the way that we eat, we look at everything and experience everything, but they're not necessarily things that we're aware of. Sorry. Um, yeah, I should have made that clearer. So I guess the point being, before we look at the detail of wrath, it's just important to be aware of the fact that when we come to these questions that we bring a lot of things that we're perhaps not even aware that we bring to those questions. Um, And I, I think it's important that if we come to a point where we find ourselves in a place of unbearable tension between the view of love that we have and the view of wrath and hell that we have, then um, that is not an indicator that we just have to soldier on in that unbearable place, but it may all resign ourselves to a form of disintegration, but um, that it may in fact be what we're, what we're experiencing may, may be instead what Jesus accused the Pharisees of doing um, to their followers, of putting unbearable loads onto them um, and that there might be other responses to this tension. So as a, <laughs> this is why we employ one former Sydney Anglican and one former Nutty Pentecostal <laughs> slash megachurch enthusiast, um, now we just need, what do we need to kind of round things out? Like a, I don't know, a New Ager and a um, Catholic. Jonathan Nully, how you can, how's that job of the ATO going? Judas Nully, would you like to reform and come on? No, we really need a, we need, we need a lady one next for sure. So unless you're prepared to take the ultimate plunge, you're not welcome. We... So, so that the, the, the whole thing of unbearable tension. I so I I was a Pentecostal who just had the dessert. So we focused mostly on um, how good God is and what He was doing for us. And then uh, whenever it always got awkward when um, it got to like kind of a hellfire and brimstone message, which happened every now and again. Um, <laughs> we're talking about kind of all things are possible, and you know how good is our God? And then by the way, He's going to torture any babies that die forever. Um, that don't know him already. Um, and then we just kind of like sweep that away very quickly and distract with some lightning strikes of the spirit. Um, and But that tension got too much for me. That, that tension of um, the kind of wrathful God that could um, knowingly keep people in hell, whether they put themselves there or not, um, that to me is an emotionally unsustainable concept. I don't think I don't think anyone can actually healthily completely really genuinely believe that. I think it's something we we kind of mentally assent to and then shove deep down before we have to really face the consequences of that. And so that was 
for me, a major tipping point that I could not love a God who was prepared to do that. And if that meant that I lost God in that process, I was quite willing for that. Um, For us, there's two key key questions here. Um, If God is a wrathful God, what makes God angry? And there's no straight answer. You can't just say the Bible says to this one because according to the Bible, all kinds of things make God angry and they don't always line up together. So we're going to try and tackle that today. Um, Secondly, what does God do with that anger? Or what kind of anger is it? Or what what does that anger result in? And I think that's a really important question too. So how we view these concepts shape how we see God. Can we love this God? Alternatively, how we understand God should shape these concepts. Can the God we know in Jesus be the God that we feel these verses refer to? And that's where we're going to kind of be pointing today is looking towards Jesus. What makes God angry? Oh, <laughs> you talking to that, and I'm talking to the... what makes God angry, Rod? Um, so I think uh, another thing that amped up the tension for me growing up was uh, the answers that I had to these questions, or the answers that I was given to these questions, um, and that was that primarily God, what made God angry, were um, individual personal, moral sins that um, I was guilty of. I was was just reading this book called Nothing to be Frightened of by Julian Barnes. Um, Right at the back, it it talks about the fact that he he says, um, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Um, So it's it's the kind of memoir of an atheist that really misses the idea of God. But he he talks at the beginning about when he lost his faith um, and uh, it was as an adolescent. And he, he describes being an adolescent hunched over some book or magazine in the family bathroom. And I used to tell myself that God couldn't possibly exist because the notion that he might be watching me while I masturbated was absurd. Even more absurd was the notion that all my dead ancestors might be lined up and watching too. I had other more rational arguments, but what did for God was this powerful, persuasive feeling, uh, a self-interested one too, of course. As I record this now, however, I wonder why I didn't think through more of the possibilities. Why did I assume that God, if God was watching, necessarily disapproved of how I was spilling my seed? Why did it not occur to me that if the sky did not fall in as, I witness, as it witnessed my zealous and unflagging self-abuse, this might be because the sky did not judge it as a sin? It's a simple example, but I think it's a really profound example of exactly the way that so many people lose their faith in their, in their adolescence or their early, early adulthood. Just this sense that... Um, God is so petty and ridiculous if, if what God is most concerned about is my masturbation or my this or my that, um, that sense of God being so small-minded 
Um, and then if you add to that answer to what make God, makes God angry, if you add the answer to the second question, what does God do about it? Well, he sends pretty much all of us to hell for eternity. You add the extremity of those two answers together and you have an even more unbearable tension. How, how is it possible to hold, hold on to God when those are your answers to those two questions? God is a, a petty, vindictive, small-minded God that's only concerned with um, adolescent masturbation and yet at the same time is this incredibly vindictive God. Um, and it, it strikes me as I, I speak to so many people who, who have lost or are losing their faith, how often it's, um, it's that God, it's that God that they are rejecting and it's those answers that they are rejecting. And, and it, I mean, to, to describe it in those ways, it does sound like a caricature, but, but that's genuinely where I found myself as, as an adolescent, as I approached young adulthood, trying to look for new answers to these questions that actually matched up in some way with the, the lived relationship that I had with Jesus because those answers just weren't cutting it. So if we look at that first question of what, God, what makes God angry, um, we're kind of assuming that he does. Um, and although some of us might hope that God doesn't get angry, as Christians we kind of <laughs> base our life on this text and this text seems to indicate that God does get angry. So one move is just to go, I don't like God getting angry, so he doesn't. Um, but it's a pretty – so those of you who are happy with that can go, good. For those of you who still remain, <laughs> I mean, that's an, e- like, that's an easy way of getting around it. But if the biblical witness is the basis – um, or a major informant of our faith, we can't just run from the Bible here. If if you're willing to live in the inner north and go through the humiliation of being a Christian, <laughs> you're doing that because the Bible has something to say here. And it's a big gamble. But if we're going to bear up with that, then we have to confront what the Bible says about it. And if we believe that the Bible is good news, then we have to pursue good news within the text. And at the moment, I can't see how this is good news. So is there a good news way of looking at the wrath of God? Is there, is there good news and the fact that God's angry. How do we get around that? Where do we find good news in that? We can't dodge it in Scripture. But my instinct is that I hope God's not angry until I really start thinking about the way the world is. So what? makes God angry.
I think the way that when things started to shift for me in terms of my sense of what made God angry was when I, I think I became more aware of my place in the world and how the kind of life I had, the kind of context in which I lived was so unusual and so unlike the experiences of pretty much anyone else in the world and that the, the church I belonged to and the way it framed God's anger was to do with how absurdly unusual um, our place in the world was because it focused on these individual sins because it was so out of touch with the way the world actually was. I came across, um, I don't know if you remember the the bombings in Lahore in Pakistan, uh, was a, a bombing, a particular bombing in Lahore at Easter time. Uh, the the Taliban targeting um, a group of women and children, Christians celebrating Easter in in a park and uh, killing thirty or forty uh, women and and children who were um, just picnicking and celebrating there. And uh, I read an article afterwards, and it had this this quote, um, not about masturbation. This one, yeah. As she sat waiting for the doctor's report on her two-year-old yesterday, a weeping mother, Nazreen Bibi, said, we were just here to have a nice evening and enjoy the weather. May God shower his wrath upon these attackers. What kind of people target little children in a park? And it's encountering stories like this that that makes you realize that... um, where our anger should really reside and where God's anger resides is in the place of, of profound injustice like this, of profound inhumanity where, um, where the weak and victims are, are targeted and brutalized so unjustly. And that what makes us uncomfortable with the idea of a wrathful God is often because we are so distant from these kinds of realities. We don't know what it is like to be um, the victim of profound and unjust violence. We don't know what it's like to live in solidarity with people who are victims of profound and unjust violence. And we live in a culture which has distanced ourselves from those realities. My uncle uh, used to be an army chaplain, and he talked a lot about um, soldiers coming back, Australian soldiers coming back from war, and how they could find no place in this society which could contain and understand what they had experienced at war, um, the experience of of violence, the experience of their own murderous rage in response to, to being attacked, but also in response to seeing um, the, the un- injustice and brutality of war. Um, on SBS recently, there was a three-part documentary on a group called the uh, Australian Army Training Team that were the first Australian troops in Vietnam, and they were embedded with South Vietnamese army units. So they got very close to the locals and were there for a very long time. Uh, and in this documentary, there's a story of one particular 
Australian soldier who was given the job with another member of the team to go and to um, to be sort of the Australian representatives at the uncovering of a mass grave. Um, and they went there and um, and they saw hundreds of civilian bodies being pulled out of this um, grave, bodies that had been put there by the Viet Cong um, and... Amongst the bodies were bodies of women and very small children and the soldiers saw that there were no marks on these women and children which meant that they must have been buried alive. And these these two hardened soldiers went back to their jeep and both wept together at seeing this this incredibly horrific and brutal form of violence against innocent victims. And they started to drive back to their base and one of the Viet Cong soldiers that had been involved in the battle that had just finished came out from hiding with his hands up to surrender to them. And this guy instantly thought, you were probably involved in this and shot him dead. What is it like to be in that situation, to see this injustice, to feel the wrath and then... The impulse is that violence is the only way to put this right, to act on that violence, but then to live to live with the fact that you've murdered someone for the rest of your life. The, the tension of that, and yet that is, the, that is the texture of the lives that most people live. And that is the territory that we are entering when we enter into the Old Testament. And when we read in Psalm 139, the psalmist speaking about their Babylonian captors and saying, blessed is the one who takes your children and dashes them against the rocks. You go, this is, this is a writer who is in touch with exactly that experience of rage at injustice and brutality and violence. The question then becomes that second question, not... I mean, that answers the first question, what is God angry at? God is angry at exactly the same things that makes, make us angry if we really experience that gritty texture of the lived experience of most people, angry at profound victimization of innocence. But what does God do with it? The impulse for us is retributive violence. The impulse for us is to try to make it, make it right with violence or just to banish that reality from our lives because it's too confronting. Um, But what does God do with it? So (laughs) that's the question, do we want an angry God? What say you? Do we want an angry God? I mean, I know our opinion doesn't change what we get in God, so it's not, this is not like a this is not a plebiscite. But can we understand an angry God? If we have a God that can see sex trafficking, and that doesn't stir anything inside this God, then this God is less good than us. So where is the good news and the wrath of God? 
Let's just very quickly look to Jesus. Um, Got to go backwards, not forwards. Colossians two verse nine: For if Christ lives, all the fullness of God. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. If Jesus is our best picture of who God really is, then what Jesus gets angry at should be a really good indication of how we should filter what God gets angry at. Jesus has numerous <laughs> run-ins in the Bible. And I'm going to skip to this last one. Matthew 23. I've just kind of taken extracts of this. You can um, read the full passage of Matthew 23 if you like. It was just a bit long to get to chew through the whole lot. He runs into the Pharisees a lot who were the temple authorities um, or the, the scribes, they weren't temple authorities, they were the scribes at the time. They were kind of the experts on the law and their whole ethos was if we can kind of wipe all impurity out of Israel, um, if we can get the people who are doing things that are wrong either to change or if we can marginalize them enough that they're there on the outskirts of society, then God will notice our purity and come and act and um, take destroy Rome. Um, but as with all power, it begins to affect you. Then Jesus said to the crowd and his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore do, um, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they, see, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their um, very long word for tassels broad and their fringes long. They love um, the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much as a child of hell as yourselves. Harsh words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Everyone expected if God showed up for the representatives of God, the Pharisees, to be the ones that he sided with and the prostitutes and the Samaritans and those who worked on the Sabbath to be spared. But again and again and again, it's those who systematically exclude and dehumanize others, those who place a weight on others that they cannot bear, the rich that have profited off the poor that get attacked by Jesus. Again, where is there good news in this? If God does nothing about injustice, if God does nothing about the vulnerable, if God, if nothing stirs in God when he sees people leveraging tax to take the land off subsistence farmers, if that doesn't make God angry, then how can we love this God? 
So the question of what God gets angry at is really, really important. If we agree that we do sometimes want an angry God, then we need to really carefully discern what is it that makes God most angry. And then we need to look at what God does with that anger because that changes things as well. We are, because we are so familiar with human anger, we so often push together anger and violence as the same thing. For to be that angry means that retributive violence is the only course of action. And spoiler alert for next week, I don't think that retributive, punitive violence is what Jesus models and displays. The entire scriptural narrative wrestles with this idea of what do you do when someone takes your child? What do you do when someone costs you an arm? What do you do if someone plucks out your eye? Again, similar scenarios to what Rod is talking about, people living in a, in a violent and brutal time. Where does God take us? Where is the good news? What does God do with that anger that stirs up against those who oppress and commit violence in this way? Is God the same as us? That the best he can do is punish? Or does he lead us in a new direction? So that's next week. Um, for those of you who this is far too morbid and um, you'd rather just talk about nice things, I totally understand. Have next week off. Buy yourself a latte. <laughs> get, a, get a slice of brownie on the side. Um, but for those of you who this stuff is something that really becomes a barrier for how you can face and love God, then um, maybe stick around. Let it be a Christmas miracle. Come two weeks in a row. You might not get a miracle at Christmas anymore. You might have used it all up, but um, we'll see what happens.